welcome to episode nine of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey there, Steve. <laughs> I am trying to think of different ways to say hello, Ben, and uh, I'm running out. It's fine. It's quite nice. I'm running out. No, I love, I love the bit, the fact the last time you, you almost couldn't sustain your, like you couldn't stop your chuckle from coming through. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was <even> worse than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Should we do that one again? No, no, let's carry on. Okay. Our guest for this episode is Connor Hare, who is the singer and guitarist in the hardcore band Morning. Um, randomly, I came across Morning via an eBay search for demo tapes. I found my way to the band's Bandcamp page, uh, sent Connor an email, and he very kindly agreed to be on the show. Uh, so, Ben, this was a, an interview where we had next to nothing to go on other than the track Connor sent over and a tiny bit of biog from their Bandcamp page. It was. We had a little bit of insight into the kind of, um, managed to get, gain a little bit of insight into the sort of cassette culture and some of the the nature of the scene that we've might thought they might be involved in but not having any great knowledge of that scene we were kind of um yeah left to to delve into the conversation with connor and find out a whole heap more about it weren't we yeah i was quite excited going into it because it felt like an opportunity to like as you say delve into that to ask some questions about a scene that i knew very little about how, how are you feeling going into it yeah, I, I wasn't sure. Um, I, I think like similarly to what you'd said, that some of the previous conversations we went into with a lot more um, backstory on people and that wasn't there for us here. And we knew that, um, that Connor was a, a relatively young person um, still making music. Um, and it was just it was it was just brilliant to kind of um, to get his insight into into the kind of hardcore punk scene that Morning are part of, um, and to find out you know this this relatively um, small in nature, but super supportive and super inclusive and really self sustaining, isn't it? Yeah, and globally so. I, that's one of the things that I really loved about it. It felt like. I quite wish I was in a hardcore band because, you know, there's the opportunity seemed to be there to reach out to other people, bands in other countries. And the expectation is that you're going to support one another and help each other and mutual touring and and all of that, that DIY stuff that I, that I yeah, really love. And I love the way that he talked about that. Yeah, I mean, they've been, they've, there are going to be some common themes that we're going to come back to, we're going to return to throughout these conversations we're having and we we can see that the DIY ethos is one that really appeals to us already um, and like you said that the there was this kind of you can do it principle that Connor kind of espoused which is you know you can make stuff happen um, uh, regardless of where you are it's just that standpoint and that gives you an enormous amount of strength and self-belief doesn't it I found it quite inspiring the way the conversation when it turned to the sort of future of live music in the short term sort of post covid and you can really see how scenes like the hardcore scene in particular will be of a mind to dig deep and find ways through and find ways to survive yeah i mean there's such a i think they they've got such a rich history and tradition of that diy 
ethos to kind of lean on, haven't they? That stretches back into the kind of the sort of origins of early eighties kind of American hardcore. Whether that's you know people like the Minutemen that were having that whole kind of Wee Jam Mikono sort of ethos of doing everything themselves, or you know Figazi and the kind of Ian McKay and the setting up Discord, you know, producing, releasing their own all their own records setting prices really low all ages show again this kind of all inclusive and self-sustaining nature of a scene which is just i mean who who doesn't want to be involved in that yeah and still that work that those bands did still resonating now i think one thing that clearly came across in the course of the conversation pretty early on um with connor was this kind of idea of a sense of belonging whether that's a kind of um, you know the moment you find the musical scene that fits with you, finding a group of like-minded people and the kind of strength that that can engender. And it really kind of chimed with me with my own experiences of having having those moments. It's so significant, isn't it? That idea of, a, 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 I don't want to say the word tribe, but it's almost like a tribe, isn't it? It is, it is. It's, I mean, that resonates all the way through this, this interview. Um, Okay, should we should we have a listen to it? I think uh, we should. I think we should. Yeah, <laughs> we should. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is uh, episode nine of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Connor Hare. Uh, my name's Connor Hare. Um, I'm the vocalist in Morning, and uh, the song that I sent over was the first track of our demo tra- uh, demo tape which is also called Morning. And uh, I suppose it's a bit of a mission statement for the band as it was the first song we put out and sort of, uh, how best to say it, um, you start as you mean to go on. And it was uh, a lot of feelings off the back at the time of how I felt and uh, put that into the first song. It was like, right, this is where we go from here. And uh, we've pretty much kept on the same track ever since. So does it feel does it feel like a real statement of intent to you that song then, Connor? Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's uh, it was a culmination of a lot of feelings that I had brewing for quite some time, and uh, that was the first thing I wanted to get off my chest as a first track on a on a demo tape. Has that always been a has music always been a vehicle for for you in that way then to kind of a sort of self expression and channeling how you're feeling? Um, to, to a certain extent, yes. Um, I sang in a band previous to Morning, um, but the lyrics that I was writing for that band were much more sort of themed and conceptual as opposed to having to fit the music rather than my feelings being something that goes over the music. It was just seen as ta- in tandem. So although I may have expressed sort of personal things in my previous band it was never uh, like a point to ever express them whereas with morning when i started that band it was very much the intention to express them it feels like we ought to delve in that into that sort of meaning a little bit if you're comfortable with that if you some people are happy talking about that i'm not sure if you want to say a little bit more about what the feeling of the song or the band is at that point i mean in in explaining that song, it sort of explains the band and what my whole intentions were behind starting the band um, and the name of the band and everything that's really gone on 
from minute go, really. Um, and that's around basically how do, how do I explain this without going on some massive history lesson? Um, Morning was started and the name was chosen because basically my brother was murdered two years prior um, to me starting the band. And there was a lot of feelings of, you know, regret, guilt, mourning, uh, a lot of negative feelings. And from the point of where he was murdered in 2015, I had that built up and that built up inside me for quite some time. And the reason why I started the project was that I felt that I needed to do something with those feelings. I couldn't let them go to waste because my, my feelings at the time were this, this will soon pass. Uh, I will get through this phase. I will get through the guilt, the grief. I will get through the mourning period and I'll be able to move on. And that didn't sit right with me at the time. I was like, I don't want to waste this time. I don't want to. I want to almost capture these feelings that I have currently and be able to express them in some sort of artistic form. And so that was where the original tension of starting the band was. That's the reason why I called the band Morning. And that original, that first song and the, the themes that are covered in the lyrics are very much a sort of, a, a sort of catch-all of how I'd felt for the, the previous two years up until that point. So it was it was very much a cathartic experience of being able to get it off my chest and go, ah, there's two years off my chest. And whether, whether I was the only one who heard that or, you know, a thousand people heard it, didn't really matter. As long as I got it off my chest. Do you play the song live still? Yeah, yeah how's that transformed over the years, you know, kind of sitting with those lyrics and, and going through the, the grieving process and, and having that catharsis, how, how has playing it live changed? Um, it's to me, it's almost like a rallying cry of some sorts. It's, it reinstates the reason why I started the band and why I started the project. So not that it's a conscious thing that every time we play it, I'm like, oh, I'm brought exactly back to that place of when I first started the band. But it's definitely like, here's, here's, the, uh, here's the mission statement. And I still stand by that mission statement every time we play it. It's not like I, I feel weird about the lyrics. It's like, no, I still stand by everything I put in that first song. And it's a, it's a good thing to go, yeah, we'll keep, we'll, we'll keep running with it. It's an amazing, it's an amazing position of strength to start from, and a very, a very, very bold move, I think. Connor. Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. Um, oh, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I had, you know, obviously, no, no idea that, that that's where that like, the origins of the of the band and the and the song. So, thank you for kind of just sharing that yeah. with us. I want to go go back a little bit, um, if you don't mind. Um, I just want to ask a little bit about how you first got into making music. What was the, what was the starting point for you? Well, I started playing guitar when I was about eight years old, and that was taking up school lessons, uh, playing guitar. Uh, never really took it all that seriously. You know, learned smoke on the water, as everybody does. Tick. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then that progressed to having guitar lessons outside of school, 
from an outside teacher. And I think I was probably about 10 or 11 at that stage. And I was more interested in video games and skateboarding at the time. And guitar didn't really factor into that because I didn't have friends that I could play in bands with. So although it was started at eight years old, I never really took it seriously until I was maybe about 14, 15, when I started forming my first bands at school by people who just like the same sort of music that I did, whether it was like metal or punk or what have you. So starting up little groups that never really amounted to much other than a couple of practices and things like that. Um, and then around about the age of 15 to 16, I started going to gigs by myself and, um, I kind of got involved in the hardcore punk scene that was going on in Birmingham at the time, because I'm originally from uh, outside of Birmingham. So Birmingham was the place we'd go for gigs and stuff and getting into the hardcore punk scene that was around there was incredibly inspiring because it was a maximum of about 20 or 30 people who were all roughly the similar age as me, like 17, 18 year olds. And one after other, it was almost like one band would play, they put all their instruments down and then the five people that had been stood to the side of me went and picked up the guitars and then swapped. And I, I was blown away by just people could it. like, you know, pick up guitars and just play it. And even I feel if I remember rightly, one of the first gigs I ever went to a band just started on the night and just formed there and then and just played. And it was just a load of noise. <laughs> it was nothing but a lot of noise and a load of screaming and shouting, but it literally couldn't impress me more. It's the fact that they had the confidence to go up there and do that. Um, and then from that point onwards, I started being around the scene in Birmingham and joining bands, trying to start bands and things. And like, so I would say like the first point of when I, I did a band I would have considered proper was when I was like 16 and I joined a band in Leamington Spa called Manuscripts and they had put out like a split seven inch record on a London label. And I joined and we had the the idea of like doing an album they brought me in as a second guitarist to record that so we did some recordings and the i think the singer recorded it to his laptop at the time and then his laptop crashed and lost all the files oh, no. <laughs> so that was my first foray <laughs> and then all the files went and i'm like oh okay try that move on to the next one so yeah that was my starting point if there is if that's one to be considered and what are the what are the key musical influences so in, that took you into the sort of hard, hardcore punk scene? What were you listening to, Connor? Um, well, from a very early age, I was very much into metal, um, and that started from a young age when I was into new metal. Um, like the first album I ever purchased with my own money, I, it was it was Linkin Park Hybrid Theory. I think I might have been about nine at the time. Um, so I progressed from that and then I remember going on holidays as a kid to Ireland and being obsessed with buying CDs and having to collect a whole discography by an artist on CD. So it was Metallica and then it was Megadeth and then it was Pantera. So I progressed from uh, from sort of your, your metal classics to thrash metal and then being obsessed with that subgenre and then moving on to death metal being obsessed with that subgenre and that was how my mind worked is that i had to like almost be a master of each subgenre before i could move on to the next one so by the age of like 15 or 16 i sort of have gone through all these metal subgenres and gone right okay where's the next point it's like okay hardcore we'll go to hardcore punk and i think 
more so than anything, the ethics and just the size of the scene was sort of mind blowing to me because it was on a very much a micro level as opposed to a macro level with like large arena gigs and academy sized venues. And these were all like in the backs of pubs with 30 to 40 people at the max. But you couldn't have found a more passionate 30 to 40 people in one room. And used to blow my 16 year old mind that these people were like so equally passionate about it and more so passionate than people I'd seen at like gigs before. So that, that sort of expanding my world on what this sort of aggressive music could be sort of firmly planted me in that world. And I haven't really left it since. So it's, um, it's, it's got its pros and cons. And does that, um, that, um, the support of that community, that scene, does that still exist with where you are now, where the band sits now? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, I have a love hate relationship with the community aspect of it because in some respects it's, it's almost everything that the, the music scene stands for. And you have to, you know, move your way up in the hierarchies of what a community exists in. And obviously that comes with its pros and cons. Um, and I love that aspect because it sort of breaks down the music industry, if you want to put it in that terms, as sort of very black and white. There's no curtains. There's no secret handshakes. There's no nothing. It is like that's the promoter. He's at the front of the room. That's the guy selling the merch. And you can get to know everybody's name in a room by the end of the night. There's no barriers. There's no, oh, you know, and same with the bands is that there's no artist and audience. It's all one in the same. And that was what I always loved about it. So I do always love that aspect of it. And it's it's kind of hard to go to other sort of concerts and stuff when the the aspect is that you are to be, you know, almost in awe of a, a band or an artist on stage. Like the dynamic is very much different in the sort of the hardcore punk world where you're not supposed to be in awe. Everyone's supposed to be on the same level. Um, the only, my only, the still, I mean, I'm 10 years deep in it now and I'm sort of seeing the downsides of it is that with a community sort of base, it, it never aspires to be anything more than that. That your aspirations within the scene should never exceed what everybody else is able to achieve within the scene. So if your if your aspirations are to be bigger and to achieve more things, you're almost derided for doing so. Um, and then there's community aspects of hierarchies and things like that and having to be nice to certain people in, in order to get gigs and record labels and all the rest of it, like you would in any other music industry scene. Um, but this is a lot more face-to-face and things like that. So... It has its pros and cons, but for the most part, yeah, I'm, uh, morning is very much like a considered part of the hardcore scene. Yeah, it's a it's a very inclusive space, isn't it? The hardcore scene, you know, it it, it seems, for, and certainly from the way you're articulating it there, and my experience of it, because in North Wales, where I am, there is a there's a very healthy uh, scene. It's you know it's quite small, but there are a lot of bands, and and it works in a very similar way. Uh, and and people and it's very a very welcoming space. But did you find it hard to initially be taken seriously and become part of it? Um, luckily, no. To be honest, because my first experience was with people my the same age as me, um, and 
I remember me and my brother first turning up to a gig. I think it was 2009. And I just couldn't get over the, A, there were people um, that were similar age as me. They sort of dressed the same as me. And then getting to know them, like, a couple of weeks later, they all had, like, the same family backgrounds as me. Like, all Irish Birmingham families, all Irish surnames. And it was like, where have these people been my whole life? Because I went to a school where there was not one other, like, Irish name, no Irish background. And that was very much part of my background. So to go into this music scene and meet people who are the exact same, it's like, it's like, oh, right, I finally found my home. So I was lucky in that respect that it was almost welcoming from the get-go whereas a lot of other people i've heard through the scene it's almost like they had to fight to be there because it was inclusive it was you're we're not welcome to outsiders if you want to stay around here you're going to have to prove it you're going to have to take some bumps and some you know uh it, it, it can manifest itself in many ways but yeah if you if you want to if you want to be here you'll stick around and you'll stick through the bad times as well um and in some people's worlds, that's a bad thing. As I've grown older, I see it as a good thing because it sort of weeds out people from the casual listener to somebody who won't bother with it past a, a certain like number of months to somebody who will stick with it for years to come. So I'm very much like in pro favor of the inclusivity of the scene. And do you think that the kind of DIY ethos is at the very heart of that then? Or does it um, does it kind of compel people to get off their asses and do stuff for themselves? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, it's, I mean, everybody has their own journey within the scene, um, but it all sort of comes back down to like, if you know, if you if you want to put out a, a demo tape release, just do it yourself. If you want to put out a seven inch record, just do it yourself. And if you want to know how that works, you can ask somebody in the room. It's like, who do I go to to press this? Who do I go to if I want to make a fanzine? And I can't I can't say for every scene, but in most rooms that I've been in, there's always if you went up to anybody and asked, how do I do this? Someone will always be willing to, you know, lend a helping hand. And that's one of the good aspects of the scene. When you were talking about um, the limiting aspects of the scene, have you found yourself as a band and individually um, challenging that in terms of what are your aspirations? Where do you want to take it? Yeah, there's, I mean, with Morning, for example, we kind of fit nicely within the brackets of what is expected and what you can set to achieve within the parameters of what is accepted and what you're able to accomplish. But I have been in previous bands where it's almost like that rebellious streak of, I have to go against what is expected of me. So one example would be that I think it was the, with those same people that I mentioned about who I met on my first hardcore show, I eventually joined a band with them. Um, called No Reality. And they started off as a fairly standard sort of hardcore band. But within the six months that I joined them, we just became this kind of Black Sabbath, prog, new wave of British heavy metal sort of version on band, which was a total rally against everything that was popular at the time, where every band had like whittled their songs down to 50 seconds to a minute long. We had done ours to seven to eight minutes. <laughs> And it was it was just the funniest thing turning up at venues up and down the country just to know that 
the only person in the room who'd appreciate us would be the sound guy. Um, <laughs> and it, it was just a, a rebellious streak. So in that aspect, um, those parameters, once you're aware of them, it's, it's up to you if you want to stick with them. And I've had always sort of a rebellious streak. Once you sell me, show me the rules, I want to break them. Um, and with that band in particular, we did that and we were unsuccessful as a result of doing it. Um, <laughs> and then I did a, a band afterwards where it was more, it's more alternative rock. It was more space rock, uh, post hardcore, if you will. Um, and the scene at the time was not accommodating for that sort of music or that sort of way of looking at things where we went, Oh, well, we're going to pull this nineties influence and we're going to put this together and mix it around and try this. And people liked us to a certain extent, but the, what was popular in the scene at the time was the total opposite. So it, it could only ever go so far. And now looking at how certain bands, like what they're doing in the scene now, it's, if I had done that same band now, we would have been way more popular, but it was just because of at the time it wasn't accepted. So that's where the parameters of what you can achieve are sort of clearly defined and you're like, right. Okay. This isn't going any further, but give it five years and then it might go further. So thinking about when you, um, morning came together. So, uh, how, how did that come about? Cause you had other bands that you were in, how did you come together and did you have a kind of shared ambition as a band from the get go? Well, Morning, in, in some ways, it was almost like a, a solo project, if anything. Um, I had wanted to do a band in the style of Morning for quite some time, but I just either never found the time to be able to do it or set aside some time to write songs in the style of, and which in 2017, I had that time. So... I wrote the songs and then I was in the uh, the eternal struggle of having to find a drummer, which like I'm sure any musician be able to tell you that most music scenes are made up of, you know, 30,000 guitarists and bassists and one drummer. <laughs> so everyone is competing for this one drummer. So once that one drummer is in too many bands, that's it, you know, quota's over. Um, but a friend in London had just started a new band and they're, they're called Stages and Faith. They've just released a, an LP um, about six months ago. That's really good. Um, and he was telling me that he had just got this 17-year-old kid to play drums for him. He'd met him from a music college or something. Um, and he said, yeah, you should hit him up, see if he'd be into it. So I hit him up and he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. We'll, we'll do some, you know, we'll try it out. And I, I was recording the songs on a voice memos on my iPhone sent it over to him and just like yeah this is sort of the feel of what i'm going for um and we turned up to our first practice and luckily for me uh, seb who's the, who was the drummer's name such a good drummer that i didn't have to tell him anything what to do on the drums he'd already just done it from the get-go knew what, exactly what i wanted so i was like thank god this is going to be a much easier project than what i thought it'd be so we had three songs written and we went back and forth from london and birmingham couple of times just to go over the songs and then we booked in with a studio up here in leeds called the station house uh with uh, a guy called james atkinson who runs it and i've recorded with him many times before and he's always been great so booked in a weekend uh borrowed my guitar i had my guitar borrowed my bass and brought all that up and we just like spent a weekend recording it and that was that and what was the feel of the session like um very good um 
I, I trust the James Atkinson who we recorded with because he's recorded my previous bands and he's of a hardcore background himself. Um, so it's never been a issue of like having to explain to him what the sort of sound we're going for because he's very well versed in it. So if you just gave him the reference points, like, yeah, got yeah, that's fine. So yeah, very good session. Um, in some ways for me, it was the first time I've been in that position where I had to be sort of a dictator with, uh, the drummer and myself knowing that I was going to record the guitar, I was going to record the bass and then I was going to do the vocals. So the only quality in control that it could stand up to was my own quality control. So I had to be strict on myself. And especially when you're paying for a session as well, you're very aware of time as well. So it's about being regimented and being fully rehearsed and going, right, okay, have to do this in a certain amount of takes. And that's that. If that's as good as it is in the day, that is that. So, yeah, it was. it's like any other session of just being like, it's it's always productive, but it can be a bit stressful. And so when you when you go in to make the demo, is the purpose of that just to get the songs down or have you got something you definitely want the demo for? Well, how I did that uh, recording session, how I've done previous recording session is you aim to be able to release whatever you've recorded in that session. Um, I mean, I can only sort of speak for myself and how broke I've been over the years. So the the few pennies that I've managed to scrounge together to record a session, uh, there's there's no second chance of going there and doing it again, unless I want to spend, you know, a good six months saving up to go and do it again. So your, your intention is always to be able to release that. And in the hardcore scene, there's a culture around demo tapes. And that starts from the very early, like, incarnations of uh the the music genre of being able to have tapes and trade them at shows and send them online and all the rest of it and i suppose in today's client well with technology advancing as it as it has there's no real reason for like producing actual demo tapes it was kind of a bit of a novelty but with the genre being sort of um how would i explain it kind of archivist in its nature, uh, that has to be a physical format for everything that you've done. Um, how I view it and how many others do it is that whatever you've done, sort of, you know, any sort of recording session, the goal is to put it on a physical sort of medium. Um, and with the demo tape, it's just like, right, okay, first release is a demo, it's going on a tape, no matter what. So I, that was my first intentions when recording that session. It's like, right, this is going to end up in a demo tape. And that's what you did. You self self released that first session. Yeah, yeah. Just doing a bit of um, a bit of reading and research before today, and that, and looking at the plead your case site, and there was a nice quote from Lennon from the the label manager there. Says a record is the true physical manifestation of a band's vision and hard work, from the music and lyrics to the artwork and the packaging. Does that kind of sit with you? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I, I mean, I know Lennon very well, and he's as much as a nerd on these things as I am, and appreciates all the finer details of combing through records that are like 30 years old and knowing who graphically designed them and who mastered them, what you know desk it was recorded on, and all this little like trivia that to most people would be 
would be just very weird that you would even know it but to us it's like it's must have information so yeah fully back the statement there how did the link with the, the states come together when we released that original demo tape we put that out um just as sort of a, a feeler just to see what may come of it um and normally in my previous experience once you put a demo tape out through people that you know in the scene, they'll just start randomly hitting you up. It's like, oh, wow, this demo's great. Like, I'm putting on a gig in two months. Do you want to play it? And I'd be like, cool. And then that gets the ball rolling. And then from that point onwards, you can uh, decide what to do next. With the morning demo tape, nothing happened. Nobody offered us anything. Nobody's offered any gigs. And it was like, right, okay. Despite the fact that we actually sold quite a lot of those demos online and we got quite a good positive feedback from certain social media pages and stuff um there was a no immediate reach out from anyone to go oh i'll do a record or do you want to play a gig or what have you so for about six to seven months nothing really happened and then it was just a case of me trying to put the band together so that we could play gigs if one was to arise and i invited uh dan who now plays guitar for us um, if he wanted to like to come to a practice session and play and what have you. Um, when I sort of asked him, he was like, oh, cool, yeah, I love the demo. The demo was great and what have you. And because he was friends with uh, these uh, South Florida lot, he was in a group chat with them and he was like, oh, I think I'm going to join this band, check this demo out. And when he put it in the group chat, they all started to listen to it. I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then from that point onwards, they were just like, yeah, keep us up to date with what you're doing next. So whatever you do, we'd be interested in like putting it out or just keeping a tab on it, so to speak. So that's where that connection came from. And um, the bass player who is in one of the Plead Case bands called Cedar Pain. He has a, a little tape label that he runs. And when we had recorded our second demo, he liked it enough to say, oh, I'll do a, a run of tapes in the States if you want. So I did my own self-released version of it and sold them online. He did his own States version of it and he sold him online. And they did well enough for Lennon to go, uh, yo, I just saw the tape did pretty well. Do you want to do a, a record on your case and I'm like yeah cool and then you know ball sort of went from that point onwards was that the the arduous path recording yes that was then, yeah was yeah no i was going to say that that's a, it's just really exciting isn't it that you could that that you can develop that sort of momentum so quickly and and that people will be so positive and supportive yeah yeah i mean we're lucky to be in circles where people are still regularly checking out like new bands and interested in to like invest money in doing these things because not that I've had a, a lot of experience in putting out other people's bands or what have you, but from talking with people over the years, it's that you're almost setting yourself up to lose money every time you put something out there. So you really are doing it for the love of it rather than the financial gain in it, because there's very little financial gain involved in it. So you've done um, you've done UK tours um, following that with bands from New York and Sweden and Florida. How does that work? How does the scene support people to come and tour? from other countries um so the first run of shows that we did which was in the summer of 2018 uh there was a band from long island new york um who were touring here over uh, they'd been booked for a couple of festivals in europe and then we're going to do a, a uk run and i'm not sure how we managed to blag our way onto like every show that they played 
in the UK, but we managed to do it. So we ended up just touring with them as a result and getting to know them very well. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. Uh, the Sweden connection, the band themselves actually hit us up directly and said, oh, we're playing New, uh, a New Year's Eve show in Leeds, which we were also. And they were like, do you want to tour around it? Do you want to like, because, you know, it's it's quite costly for them to come over and just play one show. Why don't we book like a couple? And would you like to do it with us? And we said, yeah, yeah, why not? Um, and yeah, so that band was called Existence. And that was kind of an interesting run of shows because the, the New Year's Eve show for the last few years that that had been booked in Leeds was almost like, going out on a high like a everyone would come out because it's new year's eve what, what else you got to do so the room would be packed and on that particular year it was pretty much empty and it was uh somewhat of a ah right okay bit of a downer yeah and then we ended up playing cardiff on the first of january uh to nobody like literally <laughs> nobody other than the other band so that was quite experience um but yeah we did we did glasgow the 30th we did Leeds the 31st Cardiff the first and then London on the second so that was that's quite cool to bring in the new year even though it was a bit cold and miserable so then you had your first EP come out um through Plegia Case following yeah. that can you say a little bit about that how was that how did that come about um so from the release that uh Kyle had done through Idris Path Records um Lennon then offered to put out our EP on Plegia Case um so yeah we uh, i'm not sure what our idea was in in terms of like song length because i've been i've been wary in the past that if you ever record too much it can't all fit on one seven inch so i had done it with my previous band where we recorded like six to seven songs and then released them over the course of two seven inches like a year apart um so we didn't really know, but I think we just went in there with everything that we had and just went, all right, just record everything and then we'll think about the finer details later. So we recorded six songs altogether and five ended up on the EP that uh, Pleasure Case put out. And that ended up coming out on a CD, um, which was a lot more convenient because when they have to obviously be put on vinyl, it has to be mastered for vinyl and can take quite a while and stuff. So that was quite a quick process. And when Lennon got them done on CD, he managed to like basically sell out that sell out of them immediately because he had them in distros all around the world. So we, we barely even got a copy for ourselves, let alone for people that we knew and stuff. So we're pretty pleased with that. Was it a good label to be on? Are there are there bands that you know working on the label as well? Yeah, familiar with. Yeah, there's there's sort of like um, Lennon's fostering the scene on his label, and although every band may not sound the same on there, they all sort of share the same sort of ethos. Which to sort of link that back with my sort of original description of hardcore, um, with the whole sort of um, how would you explain? the limitations of the scene some you know in me and my past i've rebelled against it because i found it limiting and you the moment you tell me i can't do something i'm going to do it more um and at this stage in my life i'm kind of more appreciative of the restrictions and appreciative of the genre as a whole and the history of the genre and what have you and i'm not sure if you could call it a slogan but it, it practically is is that um 
Plegia case has this kind of a, a hardcore pride sort of element of being, you know, hardcore by hardcore people for hardcore kids. Like that is, it's just that down the road. It has no intention of being more than hardcore. And all the bands seem to share that sort of similar message. And I'm, you know, I'm very much behind it and I'm proud to be a part of it. And the sort of the lineage of hardcore, how far back does that go? Are we talking back to the sort of, to the American hardcore, to Black Flag and that kind of scene or where from? Yeah, I mean, it, it takes, it's taken some turns and it's obviously up to pretty much each individual's interpretation of how they see what it, where it originally started from and how it should be sort of encapsulated in today because the it's only something that I've been thinking about recently is that for a genre that I at one stage considered pretty new and sort of niche, it's practically nearly 40 years old at this point. And it's, that's, it's almost like dinosaur rock at this point. Like it's, it's as old as any other sort of form of music. So it's, it's kind of weird that I still think of it as a, like a youth genre. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of uh, sort of sub genres and, eras involved in the music that i think when you get sort of in the weeds of the genre you can start to pass out certain years and certain bands that encapsulate a certain sound and you either obsess over that and you collect things within it or you try and make your own bands that sort of recreate that sort of sound and things like that so with Plegia Case, I would say for the most part, not every single band that they've put out, it's they do hark back to a certain era of the 90s hardcore scene um, where it sort of progressed out of just the sort of bare bones punk and sort of skinhead oi music that originally came from into a more sort of metallic uh, metal infused genre, which reading a lot of fanzines from that time was a a point of contention for a lot of people because it was then a distinction between new school hardcore and old school hardcore, old school being punk orientated, new school being metal orientated, which no one really uses those terms anymore. But um, I'd say that with like the, with the bands on Plegia case, they very much go for that new school nineties feel. And over the course of 10 years, that sort of varies wildly on what could be considered hardcore, but because it was all under the same roof, it was considered as part of the genre. So it's it's kind of weird when you have to explain why a band that has like double bass and, you know, whammy bar guitar solos and very proficient technical ability should be considered in the same band as a, you know, a band that only plays for 30 seconds and plays two chords. But it's somehow it is part of the same genre. And it's more shared by an ethos and a set of ideals than a musical uh sort of characteristics the tour of the east coast of the states did that happen in in january yeah, yeah i did yeah yeah how was that uh yeah it was an experience um it was actually really good um where did you get to play um well the first date was at a festival in tampa florida so uh we all flew into miami on the first of january um and yeah just sort of took that all in uh i'd never been to florida or that part of america before so that was quite an experience um and then we drove up to tampa where there was like a two-day hardcore festival in tampa and that was a, a really good fest it was um it what was it it was in a i think it was in a religious center 
that they put it on. It wasn't made for music. It was it was almost like showing up to a school hall in Bradford or something. <laughs> it was just very out of place. But you know, they'd hired a PA, they'd hired a, a soundboard, they had a very tiny stage, and they had a two day festival booked for it, and it was it was amazing. It was like basically the cream of the crop of American hardcore uh, in January of this year, all playing it. Um, and yeah, amazing to play it really great everything was insane about it um and then so that was the third and the fourth of the january i think and our first day afterwards was we played louisville kentucky we played long island new york um baltimore uh where else pittsburgh pennsylvania and I want to say somewhere else. If I had a list of the dates, that would have helped. But yeah, it was basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, something thrown together of just like what, what states could we get into at that early in the year and play a show, um, which I think more so in America than here, there's because there's such a large scene and it's very active, you can almost show up in any sort of state on any given day and there will be a hardcore show somewhere. Um, so yeah, they, all the shows were great. Enjoyed the hell out of it. So yeah, really fun. The shows that you did after the festival, were they with, um, with Cedar Pain? Yeah, we did all of them with Cedar Pain. Yeah. And what's the, what's the shared experience like between the, between the bands on the tour? Well, we had booked a tour with them the year what well, last year, um, in May of last year. And that was sort of, off the back of Lennon offering to put out our CD. So um, our guitarist Dan started speaking to them as like, oh yeah, like one of those things you say in passing is like, oh, we should do a tour at one point. And they took it up quite literally and said, yeah, we should tour UK. So we then started looking into booking our own tour in the UK and we did that. So that was, if I remember rightly, that we did, uh, it was in May of last year and we did Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, Nottingham, and London. We booked the whole thing ourselves and worked with people that we knew through the scene just to set up small shows and what have you. And with the guys in Cedar Paint, like they've been around for a while, they know the score, like they're coming over here for a holiday virtually. And if they can, you know, sell some records, sell some t-shirts while well, they're, they're happy. And, you know, they're, they're as passionate about hardcore as we are. So they were just happy to come over. Um, and then with basically, I wouldn't say it was a thank you, but with Lennon putting out our record in the States, he was like, oh, well, since I've put out your record, then you've got to come over here to promote it. So we'll book, you know, our version of the tour in America. So at that stage, we had already got on a house on fire. Like we were already best friends. So to be able to do the, the same tour twice, essentially, in different parts of the world was great. And we, we plan on doing another one. And have you got have, have you got a self fund the tour then? Have you got you get get yourself there? Is there support from the label, or how does it work? Uh, it's 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 all out of the cash out of your back pocket. So it's um, I mean, other some some tours are you know all funded up front, and you know you, you just um, just have to cover your food essentially. Uh, but no, this one was you know book your own flights just have a load of money saved away and just crush your fingers and hope for the best to hope that you don't come back more broke than you already were. Now, without putting you on the spot, how uh, are you just, are you flying in and uh, as tourists? 
Yeah. Because I know it's can be really difficult and in, it's increasingly difficult and in fact prohibitively difficult for bands to get into the US and having to fly into different airports and stuff to sort of get around yeah. the situation. I mean, I, I've known bands on both sides of the spectrum of bands who are in like sort of professional touring acts and they get to a stage where they've been doing that sort of tourist visa thing for a certain point. But once you've, you know, come in and out of the country four times within the space of like six months it's just like you have to hold your hands up at one point um but yeah it's it the the weird thing about it is even if you wanted to explain to the person at passport control or what have you it's like yeah we play in a band but we don't make any money and at which point they'll probably just give you a weird glance of why you even mentioned this to me then <laughs> like it's it just doesn't make any sense like I, it it just reminds me of getting how like however many taxi drives i've had from shows over the years and had to explain them that yes there's five of us in the band and yes we only got paid 20 quid for the night so we split the money for five ways you know and th- so there's there's very little money involved in it to make it a deal um but i have i have filled in for bands who have been of a sort of more professional unit and you do get like visas and stuff and all the rest of it paid for which that's a luxury in our case it's just like yeah pay your own money and then just hope you come back with some more money yeah it's incredibly difficult Mm. to get visas to go and play in the states now do you feel like you like because the hardcore scene you're part of a a, an actual global community that you so much so that you could do similar sort of touring in other places yeah yeah um i mean we we actually had a a european tour booked for may of this year had the pandemic not happened and that was pretty much booked on this the same sort of basis though i would say with that one we went through a booking agent which was a, a new thing for me um, but yeah, we, I mean, we've been offered to tour Japan in, uh, previously, and it would be the same sort of setup of just pay for your flights and someone will be waiting over there with guitars and basses and a drum kit. And here's a van and we'll drive you to the gigs and, you know, we'll you send us the design for your merch. We'll print it up and then, you know, just crush your fingers, hope for the best. Is there, is there a thriving hardcore scene in Japan as well? I, I don't know about a, a lot of bands. I know historically of Japanese hardcore bands um, because they actually have a very rich scene that dates back to the 80s. Um, but yeah, they, they do have somewhat of a, a considerable hardcore scene, enough that they put on like large fests um, and they can book bands from all over the globe and uh, they'll, they'll plat the place out. So yeah, it's uh, from what I know, it's very good. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big Envy fan, oh, right. and uh, uh, yeah, they 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 post stuff about the shows that they're doing, and the and they just look amazing, like really decent crowds and ace venues, and um, actually, we Ben and I, because Ben and I went to see Envy in Manchester in when was that December? It was in December. It was, yeah. And uh, I forget the name of the band who supported them now. I apologize. I can't remember what the name of the band is, but anyway, it was the last night of the tour for them. And they were saying that, uh, if there was a band that they could have picked to play with to tour is like a dream come true for them to be oh, playing, wow. supporting envy. Do you have a similar band that you think, Oh man, I'd love to go out with them. There's, there's two slash three that come to mind. Um, one would be a band called all out war which uh, I'm not if you, I'm not sure if you're familiar of, but they're um, a band from the Hudson Valley in New York. And 
I would say that them and maybe like a handful of others are really sort of created the genre of hardcore that we play. And they still play to this day. And, you know, they're older men. I'm pretty sure one of them's a geography teacher these days. And they have their two, three weeks every summer that they can go and tour. And then that's it. You'll just see them on the odd weekends in upstate New York somewhere. So if we ever got to tour with them, that would be amazing to me. Um, another one. It's a hard question. Because I, I, a lot of the bands that we reference have either like broken up or members have died and things like that. So it'd be almost like asking to jump in a DeLorean and then go and tour with certain <laughs> bands. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. But if we ever got to tour with All Out War, uh, that would be a dream come true for me. Fair enough. Um, just because, how, how do you think, um, not that you could see you've got a crystal ball or could predict it, but how do you think the kind of COVID might affect the touring across, you know, in the future, both here in the U- in the UK and, and elsewhere? Um, I, I do follow the news in regards to it quite, um, quite strongly. And like, it's, it's hard to say because I mean I was watching the uh, the whatever you want to call it the the government statement today about opening you know venues and restaurants and things like that um, and they're seemingly pushing it to open a bit sooner than expected but with certain places having to go back into lockdown and things it's I, I think it's anyone's guess on how it's going to go I mean I live up the road from a grassroots music venue called Temple of Boom or used to be called Temple of Boom. It's now called Boom. Um, And they were in sort of a a process of change anyway, where the the two owners had split apart. And I think the council was looking to buy it and convert it into luxury flats and things like that. That was already on the, you know, the periphery anyway. And then for things like this, where they, you know, cancel a year's worth of touring and basically a year's worth of revenue in one swoop, I, I try to be optimistic about it, but it, it, it almost seems like a lot of these sort of smaller venues that bands like mine play don't really stand much of a chance unless they've got like some sort of outside investment ready to prop them up and uh, keep them ticking over. I mean, I was listening to your previous podcast episode where you were talking about how in Camden there was like a, almost like a handful of venues which many bands used to, you know, dart from one to the other to the other, and bands would sort of rarely play outside of London. Or if they did, it was just like on the one-off chance. I have a feeling that might be the case going forward. That venues in London will be able to, you know, stick it out if they've got sort of outside investment or just for more revenue or just more people being around to keep those those businesses going. Um, but outside of London, I'm not sure. I'd like to think that some of them can stick it out, but you know, I think it's a case of just like crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Is there is there talk amongst the amongst the hardcore scene about how bands within the scene might kind of support those venues? I have seen like some GoFundMe's go around in order to like keep some venues up and running, um, but I think. It, it's weird for the sort of a, a subgenre and like a micro scene to be like looking at the thing on a macro level because normally it's decided from the top down how things are going to proceed. And, and I was working at an arena prior to all this being locked down. And my feelings are that those are the sort of venues that are going to take sort of priority over the smaller venues because obviously 
they, they just generate so much revenue and keep people in employment and things that they're almost going to be the thing, the, the places to be seen to first before the grassroots venues are. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be difficult. I mean, I did see people even worrying about the whole Brexit negotiations as well, because if the, um, I can't remember if it was to do with the, the, the work visas or what have you for musicians anyway, of going to tour Europe, um, you know, for the, for the longest time that I've known and anyone else has known is that you just, you jump on a ferry to France or Belgium with all your guitars and you can tell the person that the, you know, at the passport exchange or what have you, just like, yeah, we're in a touring band and they're like, Oh, great. Cool. See you later. And if you have to start filling out work visas and things for that, it's going to make things a lot difficult anyway. So there was a, there was a lot of apprehension before even the lockdown and the pandemic. So I, I honestly can't say on, where it could be going i think it's at the end of the day i think it's going to be decided on a macro level how things uh go on in the future and then it's just for like smaller bands like mine and you know like you know smaller subgenre bands to just see what they can do and uh you know press on yeah yeah and and but strength from the from from community and and lots and lots of people being in a in the same sort of situation and 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 sort of creatively finding your way through uh, the obstacles, the new set of obstacles that are placed in front of us, you know, because as uh, independent musicians, that's always been the case. You know, there's always been hoops to jump through that are, you know, significantly higher and more difficult to get through than if you're in a, a more fortunate position or a more mainstream position. Yeah. I mean, I was actually thinking about it previously today, um, just about when I've noted in times when a certain city or place hasn't had uh, venues, but has had bands to play. And Leeds used to be one of those cities where there was quite a considerable amount of bands, but there was no venues for them to play. And the way they got around it was in the sort of student area of the town, they were put on house shows and basement shows. And, you know, they're, they're fairly limited to how many people you can shove in a, in a living room somewhere. But that's how they got through it, is that if the venues aren't available, make your own venues. And this sort of subgenre has always thrived in incidents where, like, if they weren't welcome at a certain venue, well, we'll just make our own. And I think some of that initiative is probably going to be needed to get through this period as well. Yeah, amen to mm. that. Absolutely. So is there, um, you were talking in the, your earlier communications about plans to release um, record on coming Strife Records. Is that still going ahead? It is, eventually. Um we we have actually recorded new music for it um and we recorded that in march in glasgow and uh it just needs the vocals doing on it so we've been basically waiting on the news just to see when my friend from glasgow can jump on a train and come over to mine and record the vocals so i think he's all right now so he's got no excuse but uh yeah that's uh that's our our plan is that we're, we've recorded three new songs um and that will be bundled together with the EP that we did on Plegia Case and our previous two demo tapes. And that will be like a compilation LP, just to, you know, encompassing everything that we've recorded. Yeah, that's exciting. And and so uh, uh, ambitions for that. And then beyond that, what are your sort of future plans, hopes? Um, it's just just seeing what's, what's available after all this is opened up, really. Um, 
I've not been one of those people to ever really plan things like years in advance. It's always just whatever lands on our plate, we just decide whether we can do it or not and just go from that point onwards. So we did initially have a tour booked for this May with a band from Philadelphia called Payback. And that was going to be a three-day UK tour followed by three European dates. And then obviously as everything happened, that got cancelled. So hopefully in some point in the future that we'll be able to rebook that um in regards to like other tours maybe another american tour maybe another european tour maybe a japanese tour at some point it's um as long as we can cobble together cobble together the money and everyone's available we'll go and do it connor thank you so much yeah no problem awesome very uh very thankful to be part of it well i've found it really fascinating hearing what you've got to say and you articulate the uh the situation in the sort of the scene that you're in and the the music you're you're playing in such a brilliant brilliant way i i found that really fascinating yes. to hear what you've got to say and i wish you all the very best for your band uh i'm sure you've got some more brilliant experiences to come yeah thank you very much i'll uh, i'll keep updated with the podcast i've listened to your previous episodes and i've uh, i've enjoyed it Connor, could you just introduce the song that we're going to hear now uh, to close out the show please? uh this song is called morning by the band called morning and this is off our 2017 demo tape thank you connor thanks connor Thank you very much. If you're frightened of dying and, and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. It's just a matter of how you look at it, that's all.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>